Chapter 15, Part 2 Transformation in a Time of War January to April 2005 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 15, Part 2 Transformation in a Time of War January to April 2005 Debate over the role of Special Operations Forces The Army and MNFI debates over the construct and sourcing of the transition teams also extended to Special Operations Forces. Many in both MNFI and the Institutional Army argued that the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force Arabian Peninsula, or CJSOTF-AP, and Army Special Forces operators, long regarded as the premier force in conducting foreign internal defense and training partner militaries, should do more to help fill the onerous burden of the transition teams. Accordingly, MNFI requested additional Special Forces units through U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, and the Pentagon, but the Joint Staff disapproved the request after U.S. Special Operations Command and U.S. Army Special Operations Command objected on practical and philosophical grounds. From a practical standpoint, there simply were not enough Special Forces troops in the Army to meet Casey's requirement of partnering with roughly 250 Iraqi battalions. Each Special Forces group notionally had 54 Operational Detachment Alphas, or ODAs, of 12 men, each of which, by doctrine, could train a host nation battalion when at full strength. However, by 2005, some groups had so few personnel that they had shuttered some ODAs and combined others in order to constitute fully manned teams. Two special forces groups were already committed to back-to-back -back rotations in Iraq, with another two committed to Afghanistan, and the final group had a sizable commitment in the form of the JSOTF in the Philippines. Mathematically, Fulfilling Casey's transition team requirement for a single year-long rotation required committing four of the five special forces groups to Iraq without regard to Afghanistan or any other missions across the geographic combatant commands. Even so, partly as a result of the acrimony involved in the rejection of MNFI's request, a compromise was reached that agreed to a one-time surge of SOF advisors, and the number of special forces battalions deployed increased from two to three for a period of seven months. These advisors deployed to train the Iraqi army in Nineveh province and Mosul, where the Iraqi army had all but collapsed in November 2004, and where Casey would soon be making a push to re-establish control of Iraq's western border. The decision to reject a larger special operations commitment, as well as the CJSOTFAP's rejection of a larger role in training the ISF, also reflected a philosophical disagreement over the proper role of special operations forces in Iraq. One element of the disagreement centered on how best to train the ISF. The MNSTCI and MNFI model, in the opinion of CGSOTFAP leaders, compromised quality to stress quantity, based on the premise that counterinsurgency required a certain numeric troop-to-population ratio to be successful. Many in the CJSOTFAP believed that the emphasis on achieving high numbers of Iraqis trained, without emphasizing the quality of training, paralleled the misguided use of body counts in Vietnam. As one CJSOTFAP commander explained, quote, It was the reverse of the body count. It was not the number of guys who we're killing, it was the number of guys you were training. 
Just like a body count, that does not really tell you whether you are obtaining your strategic or operational goals. The training body count, how many guys are in the Iraqi security forces, does not tell you anything about your strategic or operational objectives and how well you are doing towards achieving them. End quote. Others who evaluated MNSTCI's programs shared these concerns. Retired General Gary F. Luck and his Iraq Security Assessment Team visited Iraq to review MNFI's campaign plan and strategy to develop the ISF in January 2005. They advised MNFI to, quote, shift focus to quality of ISF versus quantity, individually and collectively, end quote, noting that one of the most important keys to success for the Iraqi military was the will to win. The disagreement over how to build the ISF ran deeper than a simple debate of quantity versus quality. CJSOTF-AP leaders believed they had developed a successful model in the 36th Commando Battalion and the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force, including forced ethnic mixing, a rigorous selection process, better equipment, long-term partnership, and the ability to pick unit leaders, and did not want to dilute it. In the view of MNFI and MNSTCI leaders, however, the 36th Commando model could never produce a force large enough to secure the entire country. Instead, MNFI and MNSTCI had pressed the CJSOTF-AP to change the mission of its ODAs and focus on increasing the throughput for basic training as a way to accelerate ISF growth, believing the CJSOTF-AP's model to be too slow. But because the CJSOTF-AP was merely under MNCI's tactical control, MNFI could not change the CJSOTF-AP's base mission, and the organizations simply agreed to disagree on how best to train the ISF. There were other reasons that the CJSOTF-AP turned down the expanded mission. With CJSOTF-AP commanders changing roughly every seven months, maintaining consistency in the organization's direction was difficult. The changes in commanders brought not only personality differences, but also divergences in the ethos of the two special forces groups that formed the CJSOTF-AP. As units rotated, Foreign Internal Defense, or FID, fell in and out of favor, often eclipsed by direct action missions that provided more immediate and tangible, albeit fleeting, results. Some CJSOTF-AP commanders believed that they were contributing more by conducting tactical direct action missions to kill or capture high-value individuals on MNFI's target list, and considered conducting FID with the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, or ISOF Brigade, simply an extension of that kill-capture mission. Similarly, some of the CJSOTF-AP's principal partners, the multinational divisions that owned Battlespace, were eager to see the products of its human intelligence network and the results of its direct action missions, and did not have patience for the time-consuming efforts required to improve the ISF. The effect the CJSOTF-AP might have had on the Iraqi forces was watered down by some CJSOTF-AP commanders, who believed their ODAs should not train Iraqi units larger than platoon size, despite the doctrinal standard that an ODA could train an indigenous battalion. Because SOF leaders had decided not to forward deploy a general officer in Iraq as part of a higher headquarters for the CJSOTFAP, the disconnects and divergences between the two SOF groups and among different leaders were never adjudicated. This mistake also hurt the CJSOTF-AP's ability to deliver advice and situational awareness to MNCI and MNFI. 
With a rare responsibility that geographically stretched across the entire country, including areas where no American forces were present, such as MNDCS and the Korean-led MNDNE, the CJSOTF-AP had a unique perspective on Iraq. Unfortunately, with no general officer assigned, the CJSOTF-AP commanders were unable to attend many of the MNFI-level meetings whose attendance was limited to the general officer corps. The absence of a SOF general officer and a higher echelon headquarters also hampered unity of effort among the various SOF entities deployed to Iraq, and at times considerable friction developed among them because of overlap in missions, targets, and terrain. This deep familial conflict laid bare the fact that SOF units would reconcile and achieve synergy with conventional forces before reconciling among their own disparate elements. In interviews conducted after the war, Ten CJSOTF-AP commanders, every one questioned, lamented that there should have been a higher SOF headquarters in Iraq, led by a SOF general. Reduction of the Coalition Footprint During phases two through four of the campaign plan, the coalition would progressively transfer responsibility for security operations and territory to the Iraqis. Each transfer was meant to be conditions-based, dependent on the rated performance of the ISF. In Phase 2, Transition to Provincial Iraqi Security Control, ISF would take the lead in planning, directing, and sustaining counterinsurgency operations, while coalition units would shift to a supporting role and decrease their presence and footprint. The plan's ambitious goal was to reach this stage for all of Iraq by November 30, 2005. Abizaid and Casey relayed this plan to have Iraqi forces in the lead of the counterinsurgency fight by the end of the year to Alawi in the days after the election, but the generals would eventually have to renegotiate the plan months later with a new prime minister and a shifting security situation. In Phase 3, Transition to National Iraqi Security Governance, Provinces would return to provincial Iraqi control, in which provincial leaders and ministers in the national government would take responsibility for Iraqi security. Because Alawi had refused to allow MITS to collaborate with local police, coalition leaders anticipated this transition would not take place before mid-2006. In the final phase, Iraqi security self-reliance, the relationship between the Iraqi government and the coalition would evolve into a more typical security relationship between allied states, with embassies serving as the main coalition presence. In this phase, coalition forces would move to, quote, strategic overwatch, end quote, outside of Iraq, but were prepared to return if needed. At the same time that MNFI published its new campaign plan, it also published a contingency plan that established procedures for what the coalition would do as the Iraqis reached each successive stage of the transition. One element of the contingency plan addressed coalition basing, with the goal of reducing the footprint from phase to phase. Although the plan was based on Iraqi performance, it set a baseline for coalition-based closures by phase. Of the 108 bases operating as of April 2005, some 7 to 10 were to be closed during phase 1, 46 to 49 during phase 2, and 45 to 51 during phase 3 leaving only four long-term bases at Al-Assad, Talil, Balad, and Erbil. Another element of these procedures involved determining the size of the coalition troop presence in Iraq over time. In June and September 2005, 
Casey and MNFI would use assessments of the ISF to make decisions on whether to reduce the force structure for the January 2006 rotation of forces. This would, quote, take the form of early departures from theater, a diversion of inbound forces to fill the requirement for a strategic reserve brigade in Kuwait, or the decision to retain forces in CONUS, continental United States, on prepare-to-deploy orders, end quote. The contingency plan sanguinely predicted that these assessments would allow for a reduction to 12 U.S. brigades and four Allied brigades on the ground in 2006. MNFI would then conduct another assessment after the December 2005 parliamentary elections, but Casey's headquarters expected that conditions would likely improve enough that by mid-2006, the coalition presence could be reduced through early withdrawals to just nine U.S. brigades and two Allied brigades. The next assessment would be conducted in June 2006, by which time Casey and his officers expected the situation to be stable enough to require only six U.S. brigades and two Allied brigades in the early 2007 rotations. As U.S. combat power decreased along these lines, Abizaid and Casey hoped to replicate the model used in Bosnia and Kosovo, with a multinational organization assuming responsibility for the mission from the Americans. In a January 15, 2005 memorandum, Abizade described this preferred end state as the transitioning of, quote, MNFI to ISFOR, or Iraq Stabilization Force, with a UN or international mandate with fixed end date, force size fixed at 50,000 inside Iraq led by a non-U.S. commander, U.S. contribution limited to no more than 20% of the force, is separate and distinct from training effort led by U.S. commanders under MACI, or Military Assistance Command Iraq, authorities. The idea here is to speed Iraqization, de-Americanize the effort, rejuvenate international effort, let Iraqis get out front. End quote. The impetus to hand off the mission to another foreign entity resulted in coalition attempts to garner support for either a NATO mission or a Muslim force led by Jordan's King Abdullah. These efforts were ultimately unsuccessful because neither NATO nor the Arab states viewed the mission with the same degree of optimism that the United States did in the wake of the January elections. Casey's confidence in predictions that a rapid growth in ISF capabilities would lead to a rapid drawdown in combat power was not shared by all in the coalition. When the newly arrived 28th Airborne Corps, serving as the MNCI headquarters, was asked in February 2005 to comment on the planned timetable, its staff responded that, quote, Early 2006 is too early to off-ramp BCTs. This capability will not be likely until we get into national control. This is due to the requirement to provide direct support and general support to the ISF. C4I, Command, Control, Communications, Computers, and Intelligence, Logistics, Joint Fires and Effects, QRF, or Quick Reaction Force, Force Protection, Reconstruction, etc. End quote. MNCI's input reflected its leaders' concerns that, quote, decisions in MNF proposal to off-ramp are tied to phase and time and not conditions, end quote, and added that any off-ramps should begin at battalion level and below once the right conditions existed. The Transition Readiness Assessment While MNFI would reject the recommendation to begin off-ramps at the battalion level and ultimately discount worries that 2006 was too early to off-ramp forces, 
It immediately acted on MNCI's recommendation to develop a conditions-based assessment that would help determine when coalition forces could withdraw. In spring 2005, the coalition commands created a system for the soon-to-arrive MIT advisors to evaluate the Iraqi units they advised with a view to using the data to inform the coalition's decisions on troop withdrawals. The new Transition Readiness Assessment, or TRA, would assign each Iraqi unit an overall rating from 1, fully capable of planning, executing, and sustaining independent counterinsurgency operations, to 4, describing a unit that was still being formed and incapable of conducting counterinsurgency operations. These overall ratings were determined by a series of 15 questions, on each of which an Iraqi unit would be rated in descending order of proficiency as green, amber, red, or black. The responses to the questions would then be entered into algorithms that would ultimately produce the overall TRA rating that would serve as an important element in decisions to off-ramp brigades and close coalition bases. The TRA metrics were a product of significant collaboration among MNCI, MNSTCI, the Joint Staff, and Casey. They were designed to be, quote, simple for the Iraqis to understand and simple for the commanders on the ground to come up with the assessment, end quote, as one MNSTCI officer recalled. Quote, ultimately, you want to know, can you turn battle space over to this Iraqi unit, end quote. Implicit within the assessment system, however, was the understanding that even a TRA-1 unit would not be fully ready to operate independently without the coalition's logistical, fire support, and medical evacuation assistance. However, a TRA-1 rating meant to MNFI planners that U.S. units could begin to disengage large American combat units from an Iraqi unit's area and turn over battle space. The 15 questions that calculated the TRA rating were divided into six major groupings, personnel, command and control, training, sustainment-slash-logistics, equipment, and leadership. Almost all of the questions were quantitative. For example, all three of the questions under equipment and three of the four questions under personnel assessed only whether an Iraqi unit had the equipment and personnel it was authorized. There was little subjectivity to the assessment and little ability for coalition advisors to note, for example, whether an Iraqi unit was proficient in using the equipment it had on hand. No rating in the assessment explored the important subjective questions of sectarianism, willingness to fight, and unit cohesiveness. Only one of the 15 questions addressed training, and it assessed the percentage of mission-essential tasks on which a unit was proficient. Coalition advisors could include a subjective narrative with the assessment, but it did not contribute to the overall calculation of TRA ratings, nor did it override the TRA rating that derived from the calculations of objective data. Some tactical-level coalition leaders later found the selection of TRA metrics and their overly objective nature problematic. Major Stephen Campbell, a British officer in MNDSE, explained, quote, The measures of effects, effectiveness, were coming down from coalition, from the force up in Baghdad, were things that were irrelevant, like, is the Iraqi security forces fully manned? I'm like, yes, it's fully manned. It's fully manned with militiamen. The historical record will be quite entertaining on this, because you're going to find a bunch of categories that are color-coded green for good to go, yet the text boxes that go with them are going to say something horrific, like, The Iraqi security forces in MND Southeast are completely dominated by Shia militias. They sponsor attacks on the local population and against the occupation. They are sponsored by Iran. 
we have no control over them. Assessment, green. I was allowed to write what I wanted to in the box as long as the thing was green, because by their criteria, it was green. End quote. Nevertheless, the overall rating was a critical component of the campaign plan because, in Casey's words, it was used to make, quote, judgments about when we might transition areas to the Iraqi army and, ultimately, provinces back to the Iraqis. End quote. The Transformation of the Insurgency, page 391. The Shia Militias and Iran. At the same time that the U.S. Army was undergoing its transformation, Shia insurgent groups were undergoing their own transformation after one and a half years of combat. The Shia militant groups, Jaish al-Mahdi or JAM in particular, had taken significant casualties in the April and summer 2004 fighting, killing off many of the less capable leaders and fighters. After absorbing these heavy losses, those JAM leaders that remained concluded that to use the same tactics and engage the coalition in open warfare would be to invite extinction. The surviving leaders decided that external assistance was needed to fight effectively against the coalition. In what must have been a difficult decision for such an independent-minded thinker, Moqtada Sadr acceded to his subordinate's recommendation to reach out to the Iranian regime for additional assistance. Qais al-Khazali, one of Sadr's top lieutenants, later explained to coalition officials that, quote, After the fall of Najaf in August of 2004, he and others in the Sadrist movement were unhappy with the way JAM fought and the way Muqtada al-Sadr conducted his military leadership. Ghazali and his followers decided to fight in a more disciplined manner with better units, and they reached out to Qasem Soleimani for help. End quote. As commander of the Quds Force, the subset of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps responsible for covert operations in Iraq and other Middle Eastern countries, Qasem Soleimani welcomed the request for assistance because it gave the Iranian regime additional options to destabilize the American and coalition effort beyond its covert support for SCIRI, the Badr Corps, and Dawa. One British intelligence officer who served in MNDSE and witnessed the JAM transformation later described why the Iraqi militia sought Iran's support and how that support transformed it. Quote, They'd, the JAM, realized that fighting us in the streets with the rifles and RPGs or rocket-propelled grenades was a good way of not ever receiving your pension because we'd just kill them. They couldn't take us on openly like that, so they went over to the Iranians, and the Iranians had done this work in Lebanon with Hezbollah before in the 1980s, so they basically take their manuals from that particular conflict and use it in this context. They got sophisticated IED technology that was above what our countermeasures could defeat. They came back with different structure, covert, cellular insurgency, closer to terrorism in its tactics than an open insurgency. End quote. The CODS Force established a comprehensive training program for these new cellular organizations, which would soon be known as special groups. The training took place mainly in camps in Iran, with additional training sometimes held in Syria and Lebanon. Some of the training was conducted by Lebanese Hezbollah members, who were well-respected by their eager Iraqi students because of their experience fighting Israel and their ability to speak Arabic, unlike the Farsi-speaking Iranian trainers who had to instruct through interpreters. 
The April and summer 2004 fighting also transformed the Sadrist insurgency by creating fissures in an organization that had been previously relatively unified. Khazali's initiative to reach out to Iran had political overtones. Deeply frustrated by what he and other Sadr lieutenants saw as Moqtada Sadr's erratic and often incompetent leadership, Ghazali likely hoped that the overtures toward Iran would give him an opportunity to become the rightful leader of JAM, or possibly create his own organization. Ghazali's resentment of Sadr dated to the 1990s, when Ghazali had been a highly regarded pupil of Sadr's Ayatollah father, and it is likely he considered himself more qualified to lead the Sadrist movement than Moqtada Sadr, his former classmate in the Elder Sadr's clerical school. Over time, these tensions would begin to splinter the movement. For the Iranian regime, the volatile Sadr movement could serve as an effective cover for the actions of the Badr Corps, which some coalition leaders believed to be a force of stability, in contrast to Jaish al-Mahdi. In reality, the Badr Corps was often just as brutal as JAM, but conducted itself more covertly, focusing on operations to exact revenge on Sunni leaders and manipulate the new Iraqi government. Rather than launching overt militant operations, Badr leaders were content to work their way quietly down an assassination list of prominent Sunnis, coordinating their actions with SCIRI to achieve political effects. For the next year, as the Shia groups underwent their Iranian training and prepared for the next round of conflict, the situation in MNDSE and Baghdad was deceptively quiet. The Shia militants' overt activities were limited, but the Shia groups were active in pursuing their goals nonetheless. While some MNFI leaders believed the coalition had defeated the Sadrists and other Shia insurgents in 2004, in reality, 2005 was the calm before the storm. The Iranian regime, happy to expand its influence in Iraqi politics, was seizing a new opportunity to keep the United States off balance. The Ascendancy of Al-Qaeda in Iraq Sunni insurgent groups also underwent a significant change after suffering heavy losses in the battles in Fallujah, Mosul, and other Sunni cities. The insurgents associated with the former regime had been hit particularly hard, and in their weakness lost their leading place in an insurgency they themselves had begun. As though to illustrate this change, in April, the Syrian regime handed over to coalition custody Saddam Hussein's half-brother, Sabawi Ibrahim al-Takriti, who had been a leader of foreign regime elements operating from Syria. The defeat of insurgent elements in Fallujah led to a geographic restructuring of the insurgency. After the battle, insurgent groups dispersed across the country, reconsolidating in Baghdad, North Babil, and the Ramadi Fallujah and Al-Qa'im Haditha corridors in Anbar. Fallujah had become terrain the insurgents could no longer access, at least for the near term. Many of the surviving groups were forced to go underground, and they spent the beginning months of 2005 trying to re-establish their organization and infrastructure in Anbar as a temporary lull settled across the province. A large force of insurgents also displaced to the Lake Tartar region due to its remoteness from coalition forces. The depth of insurgent operations in the area became apparent on March 23, 2005, when a rare coalition foray into the insurgent sanctuary to raid a training camp resulted in the largest engagement since Al-Fajr. During a day-long battle that involved air support, Iraqi special police commandos, and elements of MNDNC, 85 insurgents were killed, as well as seven Iraqi police commandos. 
The most significant change within the Sunni insurgency, though, came when Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's group, Tawid wal-Jihad, evolved from an independent jihadist group into a part of al-Qaeda in late 2004 and early 2005. While the battles of the summer and fall, when the coalition, quote, fought to the elections, end quote, were effective in buying space and time for the election to occur, they also created a fertile breeding ground for the Sunni religious militants. The battles that destroyed swaths of the Sunni cities of Samarra, Tal Afar, Mosul, and Fallujah had destroyed much of the local and regional economies as well, leaving large segments of the Sunni population as refugees or impoverished. Reconstruction funds promised by the coalition and Iraqi leadership became mired in the Iraqi government's bureaucracy and sectarianism. In this economic void, Zarqawi's group was able to use its deeper pockets to hire young men away from other, more secular or nationalist groups. With the collapse of many Sunni resistance groups associated with former regime elements, many of the rank-and-file members switched loyalties and joined Zarqawi. The switch altered the demographics of his organization so that in Anbar most of his fighters were men who had served as military or security personnel under Saddam. Some of these former regime members brought with them the wealth and economic connections they had accumulated under Saddam, such as Sheikh Ghazi Sami Abbas, a Fallujah businessman who had become one of the five richest men in Iraq and who helped shelter Saddam's wife and daughters after the fall of Baghdad. Other sources of Zarqawi's money included smuggling, extortion from Iraqi civilians, and kidnappings and robberies. Zarqawi also received considerable external financial support in 2005 from al-Qaeda's senior leaders, who recognized Iraq's central place in the global jihad. With these finances, Zarqawi's organization was essentially able to outbid to the Iraqi government and the coalition for foot soldiers. While a low-ranking member of the Iraqi army or police was paid roughly $150 per month, Zarqawi could pay $100 to $200 for a single small arms, mortar, or IED attack, and even paid civilians $10 a day to spy on coalition forces. In October 2004, Zarqawi himself swore allegiance to Osama bin Laden and changed the name of his organization to Qaidat al-Jihad fi Bilad al-Rafadain, or Al-Qaeda in the Land of Two Rivers, Iraq, to reflect the new commitment. To coalition forces, Zarqawi's renamed organization became known simply as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or AQI. By January, bin Laden rewarded Zarqawi's pledge of fealty by naming him emir, or commander, literally prince, of Al-Qaeda's forces in Iraq. The swearing of allegiance was the result of extensive negotiations between the two groups and the realization of the mutual benefits a merger would bring. For Zarqawi's group, Association with al-Qaeda brought brand recognition, an important factor in seeking financial donations and new recruits. Coupled with Zarqawi's efforts to capitalize on the post-Fallujah weakness of former regime elements, the merger ensconced Zarqawi at the top of the insurgency. For bin Laden and al-Qaeda, Zarqawi's group was instantly the most active and most violent branch of its global franchise, and by the end of 2004, bin Laden had concluded that Iraq should be the central campaign in his broader war against the West and its Arab allies. Like bin Laden, Zarqawi saw Iraq as central to a larger scheme, declaring in September, quote, The spark has been lit here in Iraq, and its heat will continue to intensify, by Allah's permission, until it burns the crusader armies in Dabiq, end quote. Referring to a prophecy contained in a hadith, 
Zarqawi intimated that the conflict in Iraq would eventually lead to a battle in the Syrian town of Dabiq, where Islam would finally triumph over the West in the Armageddon. Such declarations had powerful religious meaning but also made headlines, which proved beneficial to the parent organization's recruiting and fundraising. At the same time, Al-Qaeda's senior leaders in Pakistan were concerned with Zarqawi's barbarism and his focus on targeting Iraq's Shia and starting a civil war, a plan that he had outlined to Al-Qaeda's senior leadership in the 2004 letters carried by Hassan Ghul. As a result, Al-Qaeda had insisted on two conditions for the merger. First, that Zarqawi focus his attacks against the United States, which Al-Qaeda saw as the more dangerous, quote, far enemy, end quote. And second, that Zarqawi not provoke intra-Muslim conflicts until after the United States was defeated in Iraq. Zarqawi would essentially ignore this agreement from the start, much to the consternation of Al-Qaeda's leaders who had asked the Jordanian to organize an attack against the continental United States to demonstrate his commitment to the broader jihad. Indeed, even as Zarqawi negotiated the conditions of his union with Al-Qaeda, he made political and tactical moves toward his goal of igniting a civil war in Iraq, meeting with leaders of Ansar al-Sunnah and Jaish Mohammed in Abu Ghraib in early January to plan a joint campaign against the Shia-led government in Baghdad. An integral part of his strategy was to increase the number of foreign suicide bombers infiltrating the country and use them to target the elections and the new government. While Ansar al-Sunnah would ally with al-Qaeda in Iraq after the meeting, the attempted alliance with Jaish Mohammed would soon break down, and the two groups became bitter enemies. From late December onward, Zarqawi continued his attacks against the Shia without let-up. On December 15th, a bombing killed seven at a Shia shrine in Karbala and wounded an aide to Grand Ayatollah Sistani. In the next two weeks, twin bombing attacks killed 70 in Najaf and Karbala, while a car bomb that targeted the SCIRI party headquarters in Baghdad killed 13 and nearly killed Abdul Aziz al-Hakim. On January 12th, Two senior aides to Sistani were killed in separate attacks in Karbala and Salman Pak. On February 22nd, Zarqawi's operatives carried out five nearly simultaneous suicide bomber attacks across Baghdad that killed 39 and wounded 150 Shia celebrating Ashura. A week later, a suicide car bomber dispatched from Anbar by Zarqawi's cousin detonated his vehicle in the midst of Iraqi army and police recruits in the Shia city of Hilla killing 122 in the single worst bombing of the war to that point. With the body count mounting, Zarqawi's offensive began to have its intended effect, causing Shia patience for nonviolent responses to wear thin. In January, frustrated by the seeming inability of the coalition and the government to stop Zarqawi's terror attacks, members of the Dawa Party and the Badr Corps formed the Mukhtar Battalion, a Shia death squad focused against Salafis, Wahhabis, and Baathists. They represented the first of what would soon become a wave of Shia militant groups targeting the Sunni communities of central Iraq. Zarqawi's ascension represented a tectonic shift in the insurgency. The Sunni Arab resistance, made up mainly of former regime elements that had been the backbone of the insurgency, fell into the background as Zarqawi rose to prominence. The loss of Fallujah, as well as concerns about Zarqawi's extremist attacks on Iraqis, led many of the less religiously extreme Sunni insurgents to seek ways to rejoin the mainstream and reconcile with the new government. Mohammed Mahmoud Latif, the head of the Ramadi Shura Council, 
met with other insurgent leaders in Hit in early 2005 to advocate for a political solution to the conflict, and even asked Dulaim tribal leaders to serve as intermediaries with the Iraqi interim government. Though Latif supported the election boycott of January 2005, his overtures created a schism within the Sunni insurgency between rejectionists and those willing to join the political process. The rift between Latif and Zarqawi deepened so quickly that in the wake of the disastrous Sunni boycott, open fighting erupted in Ramadi between AQI and more nationalist insurgent groups. By February, Latif and others temporarily stopped targeting coalition forces in order to fight al-Qaeda in Iraq and other Salafi groups that promoted takfir, a religious duty to kill apostates. The schism was not solely between Latif and Zarqawi. In March 2005 in Kuseba, foreign fighters from AQI fought pitched battles with local Sunni insurgents who had grown tired of fighting coalition forces and of the extremist version of Islam that Zarqawi's group brought with them. In the same month, Harith al-Dari's Association of Muslim Scholars issued a fatwa that prohibited the killing of Iraqi National Guardsmen, to which AQI defiantly responded by increasing its kidnappings and assassinations of ISF. Car bomb attacks against the Anbar contingent of special police commandos became so numerous that the unit effectively disintegrated as a result. Undeterred, Latif and several other insurgent leaders joined forces with Dari in late March to form the Sunni Shura Council, which sent envoys to the Iraqi government to propose, as a reconciliation measure, that over a thousand Iraqi police be replaced with former regime officers. To a degree, the offer signified Sunni leaders' realization that they had made a mistake in boycotting the January election. As word spread of the proposal, other Sunni leaders endorsed the initiative, including some of those who had headed Sunni insurgent groups in 2004. Ahmed al-Khalida from the Ramadi Shura Council, Khalid Shirabi from Mosul, some Syrian-based former regime elements, supporters of Sheikh Abdullah Janabi, and even an errant AQI leader, Abdul Qadir al-Damouk. For these leaders, contributing Sunnis to the ISF did not mean supporting the coalition. Instead, it meant they would be building a bulwark to prevent Shia encroachment into Anbar and setting themselves up potentially to retake control of the Iraqi government once the coalition withdrew. To demonstrate their resolve, they offered a symbolic three-day cessation of attacks against coalition forces in April that was ultimately respected by over 2,500 insurgents. Unfortunately for those willing to reconcile with the coalition, al-Qaeda in Iraq reacted quickly and violently to these events, targeting the renegade Damouk for assassination and forcing him to flee the country, and also targeting members of the Ramadi Shura Council. The brutality and effectiveness of AQI's vengeance campaign, combined with the nationalist insurgent leader's seemingly desperate outreach to the new government, seemed to signal to the insurgency's rank and file that groups such as the Ramadi Shura Council were losing at least for the time being. The View from MNFI MNFI only partially recognized the transformations occurring within the Shia and Sunni insurgencies. While MNFI leaders correctly assessed that Zarqawi and his organization had become a major threat, it was difficult for the coalition to shift from its initial focus on former regime elements and acknowledge the degree to which Zarqawi had usurped the Ba'athists' place as the dominant force within the Sunni resistance. An MNFI assessment in January 2005 concluded, quote, The primary threat is former regime elements. 
Zarqawi remains spectacular and effective, but is not the primary threat. End quote. Likewise, MNCI's April 2005 intelligence assessment concluded, quote, The insurgency in Iraq is principally Sunni Arab, centered on former regime elements, particularly former Ba'ath Party and former regime military and intelligence service members. Foreign Islamic extremists are a relatively small yet lethal problem in Iraq. End quote. The same estimate also downplayed both Zarqawi's union with al-Qaeda and Zarqawi's ultimate objectives, noting that the, quote, possible merger, end quote, aimed to, quote, develop Iraq into a training ground for a generation of global jihadists, end quote. They believed that Zarqawi's intent, as evinced by the captured Ghul letter, was to, quote, create tension between Sunni and Shia factions within Iraq to forestall the peaceful transition to Iraqi sovereignty, end quote. In hindsight, these assessments completely missed the import of Zarqawi's call to incite civil war in Iraq and between the Shia and Sunni sects across the Middle East. Further demonstrating the disconnect between the coalition's assessments and the true state of the insurgency, at the end of 2004, six of the top ten targets on the MNFI high-value target list were still former regime elements. The number one high-value target was Izat Ibrahim al-Duri, while number two was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Of the 31 names on the list, 17 were part of Zarqawi's organization or other affiliated jihadist organizations, while 13 were associated with former regime elements. Notably, only one name was associated with Shia militant groups. In the big picture, MNFI was effectively targeting only Sunnis, and the Sunnis knew it. While the successful elections were a moment to savor, the Sunni boycott would prove to have far-reaching negative consequences. Almost as soon as the election results were tallied, Sunni Arab leaders began to realize that their gamble on a boycott had been a horrible mistake. While many in MNFI wrote off the boycott as a hard lesson for the Sunnis, in reality, Sunni Arabs became terrified that they had enabled the handing over of the country to the Shia. This disconnect in perceptions would persist for over a year, and consequently, the election results, quite paradoxically, made progress on the political track more difficult than progress in security matters. Coalition leaders saw elections as a unifying factor, one that would lend legitimacy to the Iraqi state and decrease violence in the country as the elected government found its bearings. In the course of events, however, the elections would soon be used by political actors to capture the machinery of government and use it to promote their sectarian agendas. At the same time that MNFI judged its campaign had achieved, quote, irreversible momentum, end quote, in Iraq, the institutional army in the United States was experiencing considerable stress on its forces. Continuing to transform in the midst of two wars without a significant increase in the army's end strength, forced army leaders to make the difficult choices of operationalizing the National Guard, the nation's strategic reserve, and deploying some units that had not been resourced for combat duty. Other active-duty army units, whose core functions and expectations had not included deploying on contingency operations, were pushed into deploying and faced similar challenges to the operationalized National Guard units. When these units began arriving in Iraq, they faced further challenges as they were called to implement an entirely new campaign plan, a transition strategy that emphasized preparing the ISF rather than fighting insurgents. 
This new approach proved difficult for army units for whom advising and collaborating with host nation forces had not been a core component of any training or other preparation. In the best traditions of the army, these units would improvise, making do without doctrine or experience to guide them, inaugurating a long campaign of pairing with Iraqi units to ready them to take control. End of Chapter 15, Part 2 Transformation in a Time of War January to April 2005 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021